Welcome to the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Today we have Jeremy Roll. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Really appreciate it. Excited to have a good conversation with you. Uh, in order to give the listeners some context, just uh, give us a brief background and, and, and your angle in, in the business. Sure. Yeah. So um, I have been, and by the way, for any who knows me out there, I apologize for my COVID hair. It's kind of embarrassing. I was afraid to even try to use the gel because it probably end up worse, but my hair is not normally like this. So anyway, um, I have been a uh, passive cash flow investor in uh, syndications um, or managed opportunities across many different asset classes starting back in 2002. So it's been a long time. We're recording this now, I think in May 2020. So it's been about uh, over 18 years. And, uh, but I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since, uh, back next month, it'll be 13 years. Um, so the cash flow actually got me out of the corporate world. And essentially I ended up rotating all my money out of stocks and bonds after the dot-com crash way back when, just looking for more predictability, frankly, just for more predictability for my retirement accounts, understand where I'll be in like 10, 20, 30 years. And the cash flow um, has just truly changed my life. I'm not here for any selling or information, infomercial purposes, but it's really amazing. And I've really helped heavily diversified at this point. I'm almost like hyper diversified. I'm currently in over 60 LLCs, uh, been in over hundred easily over that time. I've actually been involved in 30 sales in the last three years alone, just to give you an idea. So I do this full time and I'm a big fan of having uh, diversification and a big fan of cash flow. Those are my main focuses. When I think of the active passive investor or the full-time passive investor, uh, you know, your name comes to mind. So whenever somebody asks me about, well, should I, should I just be passive or should I be active? And I, and I warn them and I say, well, being passive is actually pretty active if you're doing a good job. Yeah, um, if you're so, doing it full time and you're really picky and you really want to be properly diversified, it could take a lot of time. I will say, though, that I spent the first five years, five and a half years doing it out of the corporate world on the side. And I started off with passive because I just didn't have time for active and ended up being a good fit for me as a result. But, um, you know. All that being said, you know, if you're in the corporate, you're trying to figure out how to generate more predictability, just some side cash flow or get to a certain point of cash flow, um, that could definitely work. And I've done it myself and I've seen many people do it too. So. so diving right in, what strategies are you looking at in terms of, I know you have uh, recently diversified just given the opportunities in the market. So kind of run through the different strategies that, that you're looking for. So you're talking about right now today? Sure. Yeah. So. I am, I'm really low risk, as you know, I know you know me pretty well. And um, so I've been sitting on the sidelines since the end of 2016, for the most part, been pushing my sponsors to sell that I've been involved with, I've been, been in over 30 sales in the last three years. And as of May of 2020, you know, COVID has been in the play now for a couple of months. And I am um, very optimistic for very interesting times ahead for investors as far as pricing and repricing and actually getting better deals. Uh, but I don't think we're at that, I'm certainly not nearly comfortable yet jumping into that. And so um, I'm really looking for three things to occur. Um, one is what I call vacancy discovery. So right now there's a lot of stimulus going on and putting money into pockets of people who aren't working so they can afford to pay their rent and even money into small businesses they can afford to kind of just limp along as best as possible. Also pay their rent, whether it's an office or retail or whatnot, industrial. and. But at some point, the stimulus is going to run out. And that, to me, is, I think, when we're really going to see what's going on. With the amount of job losses we had, we just had the job support, and I think we just hit 40 million jobs um, lost, which is just, you know, they use the term off the chart. But if you actually go look at a chart, this is literally off the charts. And now I kind of understand where the term came from. It came from right now, and I'm not exaggerating. So um, right now, things are still kind of being held together by the stimulus. But to me, eventually, I think vacancy is going to change across a lot of properties, not in a good way. And so I'm waiting for that to be discovered. I'm waiting for market rents to therefore be discovered because rents are a factor of supply and demand. And the bottom line is, is that if you have more vacancy, you've got more supply and you're going to potentially have less demand. Prices are going to go down just the law of supply and demand. And so long story short is that I'm waiting for market prices to really be discovered. And then finally, I'm waiting for market uh, asset prices to be discovered. And that I think is going to change in two ways. One is, um, you know, if you take the rents and the vacancy, you're going to have uh, potentially a lower NOI or net operating income, meaning that you're going to have a lower base of profit to work off of to get a multiple off that to actually pay for a building. And you're also, I think, going to have an adjustment in the multiple people are willing to pay, which is a typical of a recession, where I think that multiple is going to go down, the cap rate is going to go up. And therefore, until we go get through all of that, um, I'm just mostly on the sidelines. Now, if somebody came to me today and gave me what I call 2021 or 2022 pricing, 
I would seriously consider it. But then you have to still keep in mind that you have not yet seen on that 2021 or 2022 pricing any vacancy discovery proper or any market rent or price adjustments potentially. And you're still taking a risk that no matter how much padding you put in today, you may not have enough padding. So um, anyway, so that's kind of where I stand today. I'm, I'm with an election year, even if there was no recession and no COVID, I would be mostly on the sidelines in the second half of the year. And I expect that the volume be much lower. And I think that's going to happen clearly this time again, just because people tend to wait to see who is elected, what effect that could have on taxes, real estate, et cetera. So I'm not really planning on doing much until at least the beginning of next year. And then because transactions take a long time to consummate months, it may not even be before mid 2021 or later that I can be starting to get a sense of how the prices are adjusting. So this is a slow process. That's how it always is. You know, and historically it takes one or two years for stuff to really be discovered and bottom out. I'm very um, optimistic for investors to have some really good times ahead, uh, despite obviously everything else that's happening to the economy and everything else. But I think it's going to be a while before that's discovered and being very low risk. I'm just waiting. So I'm sorry for the long answer, but that's really my full thought process at the moment. Yeah, that's definitely a good macro look. And I haven't heard of it that way with first you need to have vacancy discovery, then market rent discovery. And then finally through those processes, you end up with asset price discovery, and then you can finally start seeing the transactions come back. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I came up with it. I haven't seen it anywhere else, but it seems to make, I just kind of wrote down the process one day and like the dominoes that happened. And this is just, this is not a COVID thing. This is just like a recession thing, right? So COVID can complicate how people look at it. And are we going to have a second lockdown, a third lockdown, any more lockdown? I, I was trying to figure that out for a long time. And I just stepped back one day and said, just stop doing all this. This is a recession. Just take a look at what happens in a recession. It's a bad recession and it may last longer than a lot of other recessions, but um, it's a recession nonetheless, and let's take a look at historical and figure out what the dominoes, you know, how they're going to fall. So that's where that comes from. And it's quite different than the public markets because they're able to trade immediately. And then that, that price discovery can happen instantly and they trade it down really quickly, which it always leads the private markets. And, and obviously none of us can really make sense of how quickly they've rebounded and what that means in terms of the, the future outlook. But it's a, uh, I'd say that's one of the benefits of the private markets uh, in general. Yeah. You want to hear something really crazy though. And I'm a stock market amateur. Like I sold all my bonds and stocks into 07 between 02 and 07. And I haven't owned any. In fact, I just shorted the market last week and so far I've been wrong. But the bottom line is, is that um, in 2001 and in 2008, the typical pattern of a downturn is that you get a very quick, uh, you know, leg down that we had. This was more severe than normal in terms of how quickly it happened. And then you get a leg up which we've seen now, right? Because we're almost back to where we were, which is nuts. And then you get another leg down that's typically lower than the previous low. And then it kind of goes sideways for a while and then eventually comes up. What in 2001 and 2008, it was exactly 47 days between when you hit the bottom of the first leg and you actually peaked in the second leg before you went down again. We actually are currently right around there. I believe we might be at 48 days right now. I'd have to double check. We're like within a couple days of probably passing that. But it's amazing how some of these historical patterns just tend to repeat. But that's actually why I'm shorting the market because I just I'm just extrapolating from the past. So, and I would actually caution anybody out there right now looking at this rally, trying to figure it out, not to even bother. This is just what happens in a recession. I would much more tell you to focus on, especially if you're a real estate investor. It's a recession. What does that mean? How does that typically play out on the real estate side? Right, and definitely think longer term, at least in my opinion, uh, because if you have longer term convictions, you know, you're going to be right as far as value at some point. It just may take, take a while. Yes. So now that we've covered the macro, let's go into micro. I know that you are in multifamily self-storage and now you've gotten into some alternatives as well. Uh, you know, obviously you have been largely sidelined, but pre 2016, what was the full scope of, of strategies? And, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, what you're most excited to get aggressively back into barring that we see a new pricing floor. Yeah. I've been really heavily diversified across asset classes since I started. So in fact, I started in 2002 in retail office industrial, and then I added on, and I can't remember if this is the right order, but some apartments, student housing apartments. Um, and then I um, eventually jumped into mobile home parks and self storage and uh, senior living. Um, and I, I'm RV. Park. And so I'm, and I'm probably missing something that's just on the 
I've also done a lot of single family in different ways and some other like ATMs and some non-real sets. I'm actually really been heavily diversified for a long time. The way that I approached pre-2016 was I was open to anything I thought that made sense, that any asset class that fit my strategy. So the one that I ruled out from the start in 09 was hotels. And the reason is because um, I look for a predictability of cash flow because I live off the cash flow. And hotels have an average daily rate that fluctuate every day. And so that bothered me. And I just threw that out since the beginning because of just the lack of predictability. Um, I then invested. So basically I started down that cycle saying, okay, well, everything can make sense right now in terms of price. Um, and they all fit within my cash flow strategy. So let's go with it. And then in 2013 is actually when I dropped out for the most part of apartments, because if you recall, the last downturn was a residential downturn and people were getting foreclosed in their single family homes and having to go to apartments. Apartments had huge demand from, consumers and from investors because it was obvious right from 09 to 13. And by 13, I got nervous that the cap rates were getting too compressed. I know that sounds crazy to some people, but that's just the way I saw it. And so I did, by the way, invest in over 10 apartment deals since then, but they were all unique and had very unique pricing. That's how I was handling that. And what I did throughout the cycle was as asset classes got too expensive in terms of beyond the line that I was comfortable with from a cap rate perspective, I dropped them and I continued to go with the others. Um, now, again, I would look at anything that was a unique situation. There are all these exceptions, but that's a general strategy I took. By the end of 16, mobile home parks, which was the last bastion for me of cash flow, to me, it was just two bit up in price. And that's what I went, you know, sideline on that. And I was sideline on everything. And I still made investments in 17, 18, 19, uh, but they were a much lower volume and, and all had to be very, very unique in pricing uh, and in other aspects potentially. So that's how I dealt with that cycle. And so what I do is I try to stay away from getting what's getting too hot and just keep going with the other asset classes. A couple more things I layered in. I have not invested in an office building and a retail strip center, I think since 2015, because that's when I got to the point where I said, I'm investing for 10 years of predictability. I'm not really sure where these are gonna be in 10 years. I'm not comfortable with them anymore. And so why that's really important is because I'm now sitting in a position where I'm trying to figure out, okay, the cycle's resetting. What am I willing to invest in as of this new cycle, you know, to your question? To me, the top four asset classes, I call them tier A for myself now in terms of a 10-year predictability for looking for more predictable of demand and cash flow is mobile home parks, self-storage, uh, apartments, and senior living. Now, clearly, I don't think that any of those make sense today, potentially at just regular market prices. And some are even much more like senior living to me is very challenging right now with COVID and all kinds of issues. But I do think they'll have their time again. And I think that they'll actually be really attractive at some point to investors because of that. And I think that the predictability of demand is going to be there with the aging population for a very long time. So I'm actually really excited about that asset class. But the point is, those are my top four asset classes for this cycle. My tier B will st I'll still consider the other asset classes except for hotels, but they're going to have to be way unique to really appeal to me. So those will be my four focus. Plus, I usually invest at the beginning of a cycle in a, a housing. housing. Um, and so I might do some flips, um, some hard money, et cetera, because you know, there's a lot of runway left for things to go wrong. Like I do side hard money, private hard money, and I have one loan left that's still outstanding, but I stopped most of my loans at the end of last year uh, in anticipation of an eventual downturn. And so, but the beginning of a cycle, you know, if I do a two or three year look on those things and just reevaluate, um, they're shorter term and they're kind of like all green light as far as enough runway. Even if things go wrong or take longer than you expect, you can make up for it much easier. Um, so, so that's kind of, and I, I always look at alternate, other alternatives too. So that's how I'm thinking about uh, going into the next cycle. Um, and that's how I thought about the last cycle. But what the most important things take away for someone like me is that being a low risk guy, I'm always trying to stay away from what's hot both in markets and also what's hot in pricing, what's too bid up. And it's, it takes a lot of patience. I've been sitting on the sidelines for three years waiting for this downturn. And now I have to wait another year to actually make sense of it. So that's how much patience I've personally had. And it's been extremely frustrating for many years. Some people are looking at me in 2017, 18, 19 and saying, oh, you're like, what are you doing? You're not investing. And I mean, I was investing a little bit, but um, you know, it's very easy to see that now. But um, you know, back then it's, it's an agonizing multi-year wait, uh, but it pays off in my opinion. It's, it's kind of, I don't model myself after Buffett whatsoever, but it's the same, Buffett is the same type of thing. He's just patient, 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 and then he finally goes in at the right time. So. Right. And when opportunity, when the gold is raining, you know, put out the bucket, not the thimble. So that's, that's a good one. That's my favorite of his. Yeah. So want to talk, you mentioned uh, some shorter term deals and then also having 10 years of predictable cash flow, right? Which is quite, quite different. So how do you look at liquidity 
in terms of the deal structure itself, having a built-in liquidity feature, um, as well as just deals that have a shorter term projection versus a longer term horizon. Yeah, I mean, I expect to be very liquid in what I'm investing and just to be brutally honest with you. And so when you have enough diversification, you have enough things turning all the time, and then you end up with a position where you're always trying to reinvest money. And plus I keep some liquidity aside. So I try to keep enough. The one thing that I faced early on, what didn't, what didn't quite have the, as big of a snowball as I had in terms of cash flow, is that I got very frustrated when I saw three good deals and you know X year and I can only do one of them because I just didn't have the money. That was really frustrating. So ever since then, I've just tried to keep more cash available and put smaller pieces across a lot of things. That's my strategy which I don't necessarily recommend to the extent that I've done it, you know, and I'm not a financial advisor. So anything I'm sharing here, just my perspective as an investor, but, um, but that's what I do. And I put tiny pieces or small pieces across a lot of things. And what that allows you to do is not miss some deals as well. So that's one strategy that I take, but it, it also involves much more work like you talked about at the beginning. Um, so on the shorter term stuff, to me, the liquidity aspect is more about the timeline the projected timeline as opposed to me being able to get out in the middle of it because that's not realistic in a lot of what I do. So for example, I'm going to give you some historical examples. So in 2009, 10, 11, 12, I did it. I invested in a bunch of single family uh, flip funds where we're flipping homes and that was good, you know, foreclosures and everything else. In 2012, I said, look, I'm comfortable until 2015 with this single family timeline. After that, I'm not sure. I think there could be a recession at some point. So I went into uh, and helped the structure, in fact, in some funds, some hard money funds and some flip funds at that point. But once I was like, okay, 2015, this is it for me. Like I can't do another two or three year timeline of this. I just don't know. That's when I stopped it. So that's one way I could control that, but not within the fund. It's more like when is a fund likely going to exit? Normally I invest for predictability cash flows. So I like to get the longest term predictability possible and I love a 10 year deal. At the beginning of a cycle, I'll invest in maybe something that has a five year uh, term on, on the loan. Um, just because um, we're typically in an uptrend and that can help with a lot of problems that could come up and you know, you're probably not going to get cut short. Uh, but my, my favorite really is more of a seven, seven to 10 year term. So I'm actually all, almost looking for the opposite of liquidity, but more predictability of cash flow and, and versus liquidity because you have to trade those off potentially, right? If you want liquidity and you want short term stuff for a year or two, you don't know what's going to happen to your cash flow in three or four years. So uh, I'm less concerned about liquidity and I'm very realistic about the fact that a lot of uh, pretty much everything I'm invested in is a liquid. Um, so, but once you have enough pieces of the pie, it starts to like take care of itself to an extent. With, uh, with longer term deals, uh, unless it's structured well and, e and even the best structures have certain uh, alignment of interest that don't really work out between sponsor and investor in terms of holding long term, have you seen that and how have you combated the sponsor wanting to monetize their promote and get out of the deal sooner and you know your desire to actually have a longer stream of cash flow yeah look if that happens typically if that happens it's if you think about it if, if the of the sponsor is trying to lock in a promote early that means we're probably getting a pretty good pretty decent return right so that's actually like a general positive outcome it's not maybe what i would hope for but it's not a bad outcome so I'll take any profit that makes sense, right? So, and yes, I have to go figure out what to do with the money, but that's a reasonably good scenario to me. It's not perfect, but it's good. Um, I, I tell you, the problem that I've seen actually is the opposite, where, um, you know, since 17, 18, 19, I lobbied a lot of my sponsors to sell. In many cases, they agree with me, and it worked out really well. A couple of cases, they're like, no, now's not the right time to sell, and I'm one tiny vote of a bigger deal, which is, you know, you've got to be, that's why the diversification is so important, because my vote is practically meaningless on a percentage basis in terms of my small pieces across a lot of things. So the bigger challenge I've had actually is when a sponsor doesn't want to sell and then I cannot get out and then we potentially get into a downturn and now I've got to wait a whole number of years before that sale can make sense again. And had I had that choice myself, I absolutely would have pulled the trigger out. That's actually where my bigger frustration comes in. It's not from selling too soon. It's from selling too long potentially. Interesting. So, it sounds like you're pretty optimistic that we will actually see attractive pricing and even in multifamily because so far there's been very little stress or distress in multifamily. Obviously hotels, retail, office have been hit very, very hard. Multifamily has been performing well comparatively, but you still think that distress will hit that market and, and we will see across the board more attractive pricing. I, here's what I would say. I am a probability guy and we're in a recession. The probability is, is that we're going to have rents go down, vacancy go up from recession, just purely recession and price adjustments. And also people are scared. So I, I give you some real data that I 
can pass along. It's only been a month or two, but I've heard all this from different people I've spoken to. Um, I've seen a couple operators who were in the middle of deals who basically got discounts on multifamily to be able to close. And those have varied between five and 10% from what I've seen so far. That's actually not an inconsiderable adjustment to begin with. It's not everything I'm looking for, but that's actually a good start. Um, I've also seen sponsors go out and actually only be able to raise between a third, in some cases a quarter, and up to maybe a half of the equity they would have probably been able to raise before the downturn started. And that's actually shocked some people. And I'm not surprised at all because I saw that happen last downturn. So um, when you have people scared, people have less actual money, they want to hoard their liquidity, and you have less investor demand. You know, everybody talked about all this liquidity. Oh, we were going to have a downturn. There's going to be all this liquidity. Nothing is going to change. That's not the way a recession works. It's just not the way the math works. So we're seeing that play out now. We're seeing the math play itself out. So I'm a math guy. I'm, I'm extrapolating like historical. And what's really nuts is that speaking of math, the Atlanta Fed now, which to me is like probably one of the best predictors of GDP is forecasting almost 42% decline in Q2. That is just forget off the charts. Like if you think about it, someone may be not working and doesn't have that much money, but they still have to buy food and pay rent. Right. So like if you're missing almost half of your, cons your consumption in the economy, that means that like it's the most bare bones of spending, like nothing, no one's spending money on anything. It's insane. So you're going to have that kind of come into play. Um, there's a great video actually that I saw in the last week or two. It's a little long, but, um, Ken McElroy, do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. So he has a YouTube channel. And if you know, if you haven't, if you're listening to this, you haven't watched it yet. He's really good. Um, I've never invested with him. I don't know him that well, to be honest with you. I've spoken to him once, but, and I don't know what his reputation is, but his videos are very good as far as just like explaining things. And he had a great explanation about, you know, how, how quickly are we going to recover? And when these jobs are going to come back really rudimentary. And, you know, it turns out that it's essentially, he didn't mention this, but it's kind of, it's actually a square root, um, you know, so to speak, uh, you know, and so he doesn't see jobs coming back to the previous level for six to eight years, purely based on math and it's just a math equation. That's what I love about him. It's just a simple math equation, taking what, how many jobs you're adding pre COVID, how many more we have, need to have back, how many are going to come back right now based on current estimates, et cetera. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of unemployment, a lot of people without stimulus come probably post-election, right? Um, when that's probably going to start to drop off. That I think next year is going to start to really show us what the real vacancy and rent pricing is in multifamily, but I think it's going to take a long time. Um, and probably longer than normal recession because now we're getting all the stimulus in play like we wouldn't normally have. So um, yeah, it's just math to me, like it's just a math equation. Um, and I'll tell you, I've been researching COVID since the beginning of January and I kept saying to everybody, Tell me how this doesn't end up everywhere in the world mathematically. And that's just a math equation. Tell me how we don't have a second wave. That is a math equation. Like there's no way to prevent it based on how we're all acting and people going out and no testing and tracing and everything. Else. So to me, those things are foregone conclusions, just like we're in recession and we're going to behave like it's a recession kind of foregone conclusion. So anyway, as you can tell, I have a pretty strong opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that I couldn't have wrong. Who knows? Right. We'll have to see. But I think it's an interesting point about the Fed stepping in, right, and providing a ton of liquidity and trying to, you know, you could call it prop up the markets. And it, some people are viewing that as a as a way to bridge the gap, that they'll provide stimulus and unemployment to the consumer. And then as they reopen the economy, they get back to work, they've bridged that gap. Right. Another way to look at it, like you said, is kind of more like an extend and pretend and that we're still going to have that crash it's just extended out by via the stimulus rather than, than bridging a gap. I think it actually, what it does is it actually does bridge a certain gap, right? But what I'm afraid of is that like picture, like, you know, you got this bridge connecting two cliffs and it just completely crumbled. And I think the fed is like literally building one tenth of the bridge or two tenths of the bridge, right? Of those jobs that are going to come back while those jobs come back. They're saying you can just hang out here while we build the first two tenths of the bridge, but then, that stimulus is going to go away and we're going to have to wait for the other eight tenths of the bridge to actually be built in the amount of time that remains. You won't be able to get across until the whole bridge is built. This goes back to the math equation I was talking about with Kim McElroy, where there's a reason why it takes six to eight years of jobs to recover. And there's a reason why that when a restaurant opens up and they can only have one quarter capacity because of social distancing, they can't hire the four waitresses or waiters that they had before. They can only hire one. Right. And by the way, there's a reason why if you would have turned to a restaurant owner last year and said, 
can you still, do you have an interest in and can you still run your business with one quarter of the income? What do you think they're going to say? They're going to say, that doesn't make any sense, right? So we're going to see a lot. And again, this is all just math. So this is not like an opinion. This is true math. And so I think we're going to see that math play out, unfortunately. But I think that the Fed is just essentially like extending some of the timeline for where it's actually going to start to play out. Interesting. So uh, changing gears a little bit, uh, do you have a preferred investment structure? Obviously, structure can be very creative. There's also more of a standardized structure. What is something that, that you like and you know tend to go towards? Yeah. So are you referring to, let's say, preferred return, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I always look for a minimum preferred return. In the last cycle, I was always targeting an eight because I'm a cash flow guy. Um, and by definition, that means that like I live in LA, but I won't invest in LA because I can't achieve that, right? The cash flow isn't what it is, you know, in other areas. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of preferred return and a split. I love to have um, a sponsor co-invest when possible, but I consider that optional in some cases. Um, and I like to see that go all the way up to 10 when I can. Um, it's not always possible for various reasons, but that's if I had to, if you had to prefer. Um, and, um, you know, in the end of the day, what I like to say is, look, I'm not looking for, I don't, I don't like, I, I like doing business in general where everybody is winning. Like I'm not a negotiator. I'm not a, um, I don't grind, I don't grind people in the negotiation, just not my style. So when you're giving control to somebody else in exchange for diversification, which is what I feel like I do as a passive investor, if you're going to give them control, make sure that they're really well incentivized, right? And so I'm happy to give up a little bit more profit in exchange for someone who's actually really going to be focused on something. And I'm going to be actually, frankly, I'm going to be worried about taking too much profit for lack of being able to incentivize them. So I'm looking for what I call like a fair or market rate, so to speak, as far as a split and as far as the preferred return. Now, preferred return is a little bit more subjective, but it's also what I think I could get or was able to get in most cases, right? So I just look at what I can get in most cases, try to hit what I think is market. Sometimes it's a little bit better, which is great. But in those cases, I want to make sure that the sponsor still seems 100% um, incentivized and interested in everything else. So I don't have a very good answer for you on that, except, you know, it's more like I'm trying to avoid getting a bad deal for myself as opposed to trying to get a really good deal. That's the way I would put the way that I handle that. Now on moving to due diligence on a deal, on a sponsor, what are some things that will make you instantly walk away from a deal? Um, yeah, there's a whole number. Well, first of all, should I even put aside, like if it doesn't fit in my box, right? So if it's not got a certain preferred return, if it's not um, cash flow focused, if it's, if it, let's say it's a construction development, I don't invest in that. If it's too heavy value add, I probably won't invest in it depending on what it is. And I won't do even medium value add at the end of a cycle, but I do at the beginning of a cycle. So the past few years, I haven't done like a value add apartment, for example. Um, I, uh, if someone is doing their first couple of deals and they don't have a lot of experience that, you know, I'll actually potentially track them and watch them, but, and see how they progress. Cause it could be someone good to invest with, but I won't typically take that risk myself up front. Um, if the split is too extreme. So the thing, one thing immediately in the garbage is somebody does better than a 50, 50 split, which I see like two or three times a year. Someone's giving investors 40%. They're trying to take 60 in the garbage. I've seen people try that and then switch it because it didn't work a month or two later, still in the garbage, because that tells you in trying to read between the lines as a past investor that somebody is not trying to do a fair strategy and doesn't have a win-win approach for investors and themselves. That's a very important thing to understand. So I've seen that as well. And that is immediate in the garbage, like no flinch in the garbage. Um, what else? There are certain markets I stay away from. So let's say in the last few years, I love these actual cities, but I've stayed away from Denver and Seattle as easy examples because they were hot which means the pricing was too high for me. And I was, I just stay away from what's hot, right? I stay away from um, Los Angeles, New York, because the cap rates are just generally too low for a cash flow investor like me. And I'm not an appreciation investor typically. I stay away from volatile markets. So I've been very hesitant to go into stuff like Arizona in the past, um, just because there's been more volatility um, in that market as just one example that comes to mind. Um, and I also stay away from certain markets because of weather risk. So for example, in Florida, I've invested in um, uh, self-storage, okay? No hesitation. And the reason is because if there's a big hurricane that comes in, it's typically a low building, could even be one story. Um, the major damage you're gonna have, because there's very few, if any, windows in most of the buildings, you're gonna have like debris hitting a roof and maybe damaging an air conditioner, right? Um, 
flooding won't even be a factor because you're typically got concrete floors and the actual units, you, it's mandatory insurance for the um, tenants to have to protect their own items. So you're not even liable for that. So I was totally comfortable with all that. And the greatest part is that when there's a hurricane, people tend to have stuff stored in there. And then they, you know, for days, if it's really bad, they just won't go, they can't even go back to this storage so they're paying rent the whole time. So um, totally comfortable with that. Now, if you told me to invest in a, you know, 200 unit apartment building on the coast at Miami, right, with windows everywhere and all that, without a loss of income provision and the insurance would probably wouldn't exist in that area, that would something I'd be stay, I'd stay away from. Um, I stay away from certain areas, like for example, hurricanes are tough to manage with mobile home parks, but tornadoes aren't as bad. Uh, probably same RV parks. Um, I stay away from certain northern climates when, when it has to do with, let's say, mobile home parks because the pipes can freeze. Um, and so, and I'm just giving you random examples, right? Each asset class is going to have its own thing. Um, so there's a lot of different answers I can give you about that, but there's a lot of thought and strategy that goes into just try to minimize the risk. Yeah, I think specifically binary risks, right? Things that can just totally turn your investment upside down. Yes, 100%. Yep. The other thing you talked about was new construction and uh, value add, you know, deeper value add that may imply having zero cash flow for the first year. Yes. Right. And obviously with construction, you don't have any cash flow going in. And you being a cash flow investor, that's something important. So what would you say would be, uh, you know, everybody has some value add in their deal baked in, right? Whether you believe it in or not. Um, but what would you say would be the minimum cash flow that you're looking for in year one to, to meet that minimum hurdle? And then, you know, if, if it grows, which it, it, of course it'll be projected to grow, you know, that's gravy. Yeah, so I can speak to the last cycle. The challenge I have for this coming cycle is that I'm going to wait to see where things reset to determine a preferred return and a cash flow target to be realistic. So I don't know right now, but I can tell you in the last cycle, my minimum target cash flow return for year one was 9% net to investors. And my minimum average annualized cash flow across, let's say, a 10-year projection was 11% average net to investors. Did I do any deals that were like at eight, eight and a half? Probably. I felt more comfortable at eight and a half than eight. But if it was going to do that, then to your point, there had to have been a bit of a more obvious value I'd play that I was going to benefit from to actually concede that. Um, now, to some of you, that may sound nuts. If you've been investing for two, three years, you're like, well, how the hell was this guy getting 9%? There was nothing at 9% a year or two ago. I agree with you. That's why I've been on the sidelines. You know, a building in 2010 or 11 or 12, uh, a part building. I mean, I went into a deal in 2013 just to give everybody a real life deal. 267 unit apart building in, in Mesquite, which is Dallas, Texas. It was actually, we were, we were rehabbing the units on turn. I was 90 something percent occupied. It was 9.1% cap rate. So, you know, we were probably cash flowing over 10 net to investors out the gate. That was a reality of that time, you know? And so now we need to do is take a look at interest rates have structurally changed and come down. What does that mean for investors going forward? And I'm going to try and evaluate what that means for me as far as my cash flow targets and even the preferred return that's realistic going forward. And it's not clear yet. So. Got it. Yeah. I think that's a great perspective and, you know, having that target will definitely help you, you know, guide your investment decision-making. How about interest only? How does that factor into your calculus of, well, is it a nine, eight and a half average? Yeah. I, because I'm concerned, I prefer to have that nine hit it without interest only. Um, and if it's going to be interest only and it's only hitting a nine, I've got to consider all the other factors because that's not what that equation is meant to reflect. Um, I have, um, you know, my opinion about interest only is still evolving. I, I know some operators who take like five, 10 year interest only. And I, they actually make, a, I think a reasonable argument why that actually makes a lot of sense is you've got the low enough LTV. Um, and you know, they may do 60 or 65, for example, and I could kind of get that. Um, so, you know, my interest only perspective may change over time, but currently I'm, I'm somewhat adverse to it still. And I always have been, um, in that. And by the way, um, to be clear, I've done a lot of deals that have been one or two or three or interest only 10 year, but we we're buying something at eight and a half cap. We're cash flowing way high and we we're maybe going at a 65% LTV. And I think that's very safe, right? And I'm just getting some extra cash flow, but we're still going to get majority amortization. So I'm willing to do that kind of stuff. But what really I was very weary of in the past few years is that interest only periods became loosened and loosened. I saw a lot of five-year interest only deals in the last two, three years. And those were at 70 or 75% LTVs or higher. That's where I draw the line. Like I, I would not be doing those deals just because I'm conservative. 
What about, um, are you familiar with HUD financing? 35-year term, 35-year amortization, no interest only. Yeah, I, I don't get into that much HUD stuff. I like the, the reason why I like the, um, there's two reasons why I like the, uh, that thing. One is because you're locking in a long-term interest rate, which to me is just more predictability. And two is because those are typically very assumable. And that's really, really good. Um, that to me is probably the number one characteristic. Um, I have no issue. In fact, I, I consider it a bonus to have that type of loan, no doubt. Um, so, yeah, and I, most of the deals I get into, the, the longest time will be 10 years. So I wouldn't be getting into it because it's got a 30-year horizon. And I don't know that I want to be in with a sponsor for 30 years. But I do like the fact that it's very flexible. And, um, you know, uh, typically you can get a supplemental. Um, and, you know, just having that ability for someone to take the loan over is a huge plus, huge plus. Yeah, and there are some neat uh, features on the assumption that you can do, uh, including a A7 refi where you can actually, as it's been amortized down, you can reborrow up to the initial max proceeds. Uh, you can do an interest rate reduction. There's, there's other things that you can do there, which uh, give added flexibility to the refi, uh, or to the assumption rather. Uh, so one, one thing that's interesting is what are some important items that are related to the PPM, kind of the nitty gritty that many miss that, that is important. One thing I want to bring up is just the, uh, people talk about tax benefits, but are, you know, I'm not sure if everybody's really focused on the net tax benefit to the investor and just see if you had a perspective on that. Well, I, yeah, I've got to definitely have a perspective. So yeah, there's a few things that I can quickly immediately come to mind about the PPM that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to. Um, one is to your point, I was going to say, one of the things I was going to say is that you know, I think a lot of people just assume that they're getting their pro rata share of depreciation based on how much they've equity they've invested. But I've seen many deals where either the investors are structured to get no depreciation or maybe half the depreciation, or let's say if it's a 75-25 split in favor of investors, they're only going to get 75% of depreciation because the sponsor can benefit a ton from that depreciation, depending on what else they hold. So um, I typically will always verify whether we're getting our pro rata share or not. Um, I think that's a very, very important point because I'll probably pass if we're not. Uh, that's a, it's an important feature if you're an investor to be able to get that tax deferment, I think, especially if you're a cash flow investor. Um, one thing I think a lot of people don't look for, which I usually try to negotiate if need be, is, um, you know, uh, upon either a divorce um, or a death of a spouse, sometimes it's not an automatic tra transfer because you would assume it would be. But, but in fact, what, what those events can cause you to automatically have to sell your shares. And in fact, in some cases, the sale occurs at a discount. It's actually predetermined in terms of pricing. Because remember, anyone can make any rules they want. So I've seen that happen more than once. Um, I usually like having the flexibility. So imagine that like, um, you know, my, my wife and I are invested in a deal and I want her to be able to uh, continue on. Let's say I get hit by a bus and then I want her to be able to continue on the cash flow, right? Because that's my life insurance policies, all this cash flow. Well, that's not going to work well if the operating agreement is make you are forcing you to sell the property at God knows what value at the time. So that's a very important provision to look for. I think uh, that most people probably don't look for um, cash call provisions. I think that the cash calls are very rare. I've probably only been in a couple over the past 18 years. Obviously those are not fun events. And sometimes they're actually, I've been in a couple of many for good reasons, but like uh, expansion of centers or a huge tenant coming in that we want, but Cash call provisions are often very high level, if, if not even stipulated at all. And I think it's really important to understand what you're getting into, whether a cash call means it's typically going to be equity, debt, um, what order do they go in to decide that? Do they take outside investors right away or not? You know, it's, um, I, I think there's a, I just think there's a lot of detail lacking in that provision often where it's not really spelled out. And sometimes I'll try to renegotiate, you know, the, what, what's happening and what, what order it's happening in. So, um, that's very important. Um, what's also interesting is that reporting cash distribution requirements. So, you know, somebody tells you, look, we're going to give you a quarterly report and quarterly cash distributions with, within 45 days of the close of the quarter, right? Sounds really reasonable. But then you go look at the legal document. None of this actually in there is not legally required. Now, in half the time, I think the sponsor doesn't even know that because they're just having their attorney put the document together. I don't take for granted that they're all reading them. I'm pretty sure they're not all reading them because I try to negotiate things and be like, that someone will come back to me and say, that's the way it works. I'm like, no, it, that's not the way it works. Look at your legal document. And they'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. And they'll put it in, right? So the problem with operating agreements is that um, if it's the real rules and it's the real legal rules they have to follow. And so if you're not looking for these things, 
they can actually not do these things and then you cannot actually hold them legally accountable, which is a problem. So it's important to look for all these things. Even tax returns, I always ask them to put in an exact date that they're due. So what's crazy is that legally, if a tax return is due by March 15th, say to you, then it doesn't, it just says they'll get it to you as quickly as they can. Well, no, I mean, if you need that for your taxes to have it on time, you have to have it legally in there. Now, if they breach it, they can't get it to you. To me, it's like having an ace in the hole, right? The purpose of having all that is not to go pursue them the day, you know, March 16th, you don't get your tax return. It's that just another ace in the hole should other things happen. And now you can start to like add up the things. But if you don't have it all in the legal document, you can't hold them accountable. The rules are the legal document, not even what they've told you necessarily. So I'd caution people to read it very carefully. I'm sure a lot of people unfortunately don't, but I think it's really important to understand the rules that you're getting involved in. Yeah, that's some really good stuff. And that's a perfect transition to distributions, communications, reporting, investment portal. So let's, let's hear, it, you know, the perfect sponsor, perfect deal. What does, what do all those things look like for your deal? Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, most of the deals I get involved in are going to be quarterly distributions. Do I prefer monthly distributions? Yes. Do I think it's reasonable? Probably not. It's a lot of administrative work. And I think it's also, frankly, in some ways it's, it's counter, um, helpful in that, you know, if, uh, let's say January 31st and someone makes a distribution. Then on February 10th, they realize, Oh, we had this unexpected maintenance. Well, now you're not going to go claw back that distribution, right? Whereas if you have the full quarter, you can actually manage that better from a risk perspective. So um, I'm totally fine with quarterly reports and quarterly distributions. Um, I prefer to get my quarterly reports within 30 or 45 days. I'm okay up to 60. I, I see that sometimes it's give someone more time and flexibility. Now reporting is really important and reporting varies just across the board. I mean, there is like, you know, one page reporting and 10 page reporting and I've seen and everything in between. And so one thing I think investors don't do very often, which I think they should do is don't make any assumptions about the level of reporting you think you want to see and what you're going to get. Those are assumptions before you get involved with a sponsor and actually hand them a check, ask them for a sample of a previous quarterly report so you can understand how the report looks at what it includes. Because a lot of the time, I think you're going to be surprised to find that stuff you would have assumed is in there may or may not be in there. It's completely subjective of what they put in there. So reporting to me is important to verify as part of the diligence process. And if you're not comfortable with the reporting, don't, you know, just move on to the next deal. There's plenty of deals out there, but it's something that's important to verify. And I, the, the thing that always kills me is that I've seen this happen over and over where an investor does not look at a previous quarterly report. They get the first couple and they're like, this is not, this is not great. Like this is missing a lot of stuff. I want to start asking for stuff. And the, the sponsor's like, we don't provide that. I mean, it could have been as simple as them asking for a report in the past and not making assumptions. And I think that's a very important thing for investors to do too, because reporting is important and it really varies across the board. What are some of those important items in that quarterly report that yeah, well, you're actually, saying is sometimes missing? Yeah. So here's a great example. And this is more philosophical. Um, and I actually see both sides of the coin on this. In certain asset class, I think is more applicable than others. I like to see a reporting that actually compares the dis current distributions to pro forma. Okay. So if I'm in year five and I was supposed to get 11.2% cash flow, I'm not expecting 11.2% cash flow, by the way, that is unrealistic, right? It, I'm hoping it's going to be between 10 and 12, call it. Okay. To be fair or whatever it's going to be. Um, but some sponsors will actually show you a variance report on budget instead of cash flow. And the reason is because they'll turn to you and say, look, we made these projections five years ago. X and Y has changed across time, right? COVID's kept come up. We didn't expect that. So now it's not realistic for you to be able to base our performance based off of what's come up in the past. It's actually more realistic about when we sit down to, to plan for this year, how we actually performing versus plan from an operations perspective. Really logical, frankly, just that I'm a cash flow investor. So I don't, you know, to an extent, what's actually equally or more important to me is what check am I getting from this property in terms of what I needed to get from it for that equity that I put into it. But you know what? They may not report on cash flow. So, um, you know, that's an important component. You've got to take a look at it and report it and just see if you're on the same page with them or not. Um, I've seen some investors try to change that with some sponsors over time with some or no success. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an important thing to look for in the quarterly report for sure. And it may, may not at all line up with what you're looking for. It's important to look for these things in advance. Yeah, we, we have a one table that compares, uh, performance to underwriting so to the what we thought at acquisition as well as performance versus budget 
See, I don't, that, that's great because the vast majority of time I do not see both. Um, and that's because I think a lot of the time the sponsors may be afraid to compare it to the previous pro forma. And to be honest, like if you're in a, if you're in an office building with 40 tenants and the leases are one to three years or three years say, and you're eight years in, is it really fair for them to have to compare their eight, eight year cash flow compared to pro forma when 10 of these 30 tenants have turned and all those leases are based on current market rents and et cetera. It's not quite as fair, right? So I see why they're trying to say, no, look, judge me on my performance for the year. I, I can understand that. In other asset classes like mobile home parks, I think it's a lot more predictable potentially, you know, and you've got everything in between. So I get both sides for sure. It's great you're showing both though. That's a really, that's probably the optimal situation. Another thing I think is good to show is, uh, you know, obviously the distribution amount versus how much is projected and then, and then what that means as far as an annualized um, cash on cash return, but also uh, keeping an ongoing tally of your reserves and, and where you stand in terms of how much liquidity you have on hand. And, and basically you made it a distribution, but how much of that distribution was via dipping into your uh, capital account or, you know, basically your reserve. And so, um, you know, that's something else that we kind of keep track and we say, okay, well, we're, over budget on our capital expenditures budget. So therefore we had to take some money here out of our cash reserve. Um, and then here's your distribution. So it's kind of all the three different working components. Yeah, that's great. I mean, most of the operators I see are not quite down to that level of transparency, honestly. I mean, I even still today am with some operators who will send me a check for $632 for the quarter. And they won't even say this represents a 10% annualized return. They'll just give you the check and give you the report and you got to go and do the math. And that's just annoying as an investor, for example. Now, obviously, breaking down to the level you're talking about is even better. But I'm pointing this out to people, again, just saying it's so important to look at those reports and make sure you're actually okay with what you're going to be getting from the person. Makes sense. So, uh, you know, almost wrapping up here, we've kind of we've talked along these lines. But what are you looking for from sponsors that you rarely see? We already talked about reporting. But is there anything else in terms of deal structure? investment strategy or some other feature or service in, in the deal that, that you want? Yeah. Um, I think that really good reporting is really tough to come by and I love to have it. So that's something I, I would say that um, really, really good reporting because in a non-institutional world that I invest in, it's just not as common as I like it to be. So really top-notch reporting would be great. Um, sometimes I'll see monthly reporting. That's very rare, but it does come up and that's very impressive. Some sponsors will actually take the first year to give you monthly reports while they're stabilizing the property and then they'll still go to quarterly. That's great too. Um, and that's just, to me, that's like above and beyond. So it's almost like icing on the cake. I don't expect it, but it's a really nice to have. It, it really is. Um, monthly checks are a great to have. Again, I think that's overkill, but um, you know, I'm not going to complain instead of quarterly. Um, what else? Um, some sponsors do like a quarterly call or even a monthly call in their first year. And that's also nice to have. I think a lot of investors don't attend that, but it is nice if you do want to talk to them, if you want to hear more details that it's actually being offered and you can just listen to the recording. So that's, a, again, these are things that I don't expect and aren't common, but that are nice to have when they're available. And I wouldn't expect to see them necessarily. Um, what else? Um, I, you know, in the end of the day, everyone's got a different level of communication. So what I would say is that someone that's more communicative than less, in my opinion, is better when you're a passive investor as a just general nutshell, right? Whether it's that they're giving you monthly reports, whether it's more detailed reports, um, you've given them control, more communication is better than less. So the nice to have is like max communication and someone who's very proactive in communication is, is really optimal from my perspective is the best way I can put it. One thing to address on the monthly distributions, it's something that we've addressed, you know, internally discussed and, and don't like due to the complications of trying to understand where we stand in terms of accounts receivable and payable and yep. you know, really what, what distribution we can make. Um, but, you know, there, there is a solution there somewhere in terms of just having a little bit more cash on hand and a larger reserve. And that way you can just more straightforward look at, okay, how much cash flow did the property generate? and then if you end up having some sort of unexpected expense come up later, you have that extra reserve to handle those, pay those payables. Yeah. Look, you know, I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't really think it's fair that an operator should have to provide monthly distribution. I think it's administratively even, because if they have a lot of investors, that's a lot of work and it's just extra work that doesn't need to be done. 
So, you know, I haven't used the word fair very much in this podcast, but it's, it's what I've been trying to say, but I haven't actually said it, you know, especially like if I'm looking at the, before we're talking about what splits you're looking for, what structure you're looking for, I'm looking for what's fair. And to me, um, the nice to have is monthly report, but what's fair is quarterly reports, right? And I'm not really expecting much beyond fair because it's just not fair. Um, and I think the monthly distributions would be probably a little tilted towards unfair on the sponsor, in my opinion. Lastly, what are some recommendations you have for sponsors looking to raise more capital? Um, you know, that's a particularly important question right now. You know, being in May 2020, I mean, sponsors, I guarantee you are having a tough time across the board. Um, that's just a, the nature of a downturn. Um, I would say max out communication. Um, and, um, you know, if you're new then or relatively new, if somebody's like, look, you're not experienced enough for me, if it were me, I would just do what you can to get them on your list to watch you. Because, you know, if you're going to go through a couple of years of experience and stuff, you might as well start to grow your snowball from the start. Even if someone doesn't fit today, they can be a fit in the future. Um, so I'm a big proponent that I do that the reverse way, as I mentioned. I actually try to get on a list like that. But um, if the most you can do to get people on your list and just get more exposure, the better. I am not much of a social media I'm a complete amateur when it comes to this. I couldn't give any recommendations in that line, but I know that you can get a lot of reach there. I know new sponsors sometimes may start a podcast and then get a lot of exposure that way, um, which can be really handy. Um, and that can help on the fundraising. Some sponsors will plug into a joint venture equity partner where they'll bring an investor group in to raise um, some or all the funds for them. That's a great way. You've got to make sure you're structured properly as all these legal challenges, but that can be an easy way and a quick way. Um, those are some suggestions. Uh, you know, the, the challenge with fundraising is that the reality is that if you want to build up your own database, that's not something that happens overnight and it takes a long time. And frankly, anyone that's trying to do that today is, is swimming against the tide, right? The next 12 to 24 months are going to be the hardest time to raise capital and the best time to do a deal, but mm -hmm. it is the hardest time to raise capital. So you have to have a long-term mindset for that, in my opinion. And if, if you're starting now and you're not okay with taking a very long-term mindset on that, I'd recommend maybe looking at a different industry because I'm just trying to be realistic, especially with what we're facing currently with the downturn. Definitely some great advice. Well, I appreciate your time uh, having this great discussion. We went through a whole bunch and uh, I think we covered some great topics. So thanks again for coming on the Capital Spotlight and um, look forward to talking with you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And just if any of the listeners want to contact me, just um, the, quick, the easiest way to reach me, I'm happy to talk to anybody who is new or experienced, if you want to network, if you have questions because you're new and you're considering passive investing, if you're a group that just wants to network, um, that's looking for more investors or looking to just exchange information on sponsors, if you're a sponsor looking for more capital, anyone's welcome to, to contact me for any reason. Um, my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So that's jroll at rollinvestments.com. Feel free to, to reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, Rob.